All right. Uh, I'm doing an introduction for our guest speaker, and I'm going to be taking just a little bit more time than I normally do because I need to set this up right because this is actually an incredibly important moment in this church's life. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, you know that I've been saying since uh, the, the Lord spoke to me uh, right about the same time that Eastlake made their decision to be inclusive to same sex. And we're not talking about that, so just, but the point is, is when that happened, I was praying and I felt like the Lord talked to me and said, it's a new season that he was going to change a lot of things, that the culture itself had changed so much that the normal evangelism, normal outreach, normal things that we do would be changing greatly. And I've told you that. I said, I think it's a word from the Lord, and what do we do with the word of the Lord? We consider whether or not it's true, we discern it, we go after it, we try and figure out if it's right, right? So one of the things that I do in order to understand if, I'm, if it really is the Lord is I trust that I'm not the only person the Lord's talking to about things like this, that he's saying it broadcast, and some people are hearing it and getting it and telling it to people. So I look for confirmation on it. So what happened right at that very same time is Marina Martin, sitting right over there, uh, came up to me and said, I had a dream. Now just listen to this dream. She said, I had a dream, and in the dream what happened was is there was this host of people before the throne. It's that revelation scene. God on his throne and a host of people before the throne worshiping him. And listen to this. These people were worshiping him, and God was pleased that they were worshiping him. But they were all naked. And what the Lord told her, what the Lord brought to her heart was, the church is not clothing people. The church has failed in its job to understand and to help people understand righteousness, to help them understand what it is to stand before the Lord. And so he was pleased at their worship, but there was a problem, and it was the church's problem. So I said, okay, that sounds a lot like what I'm talking about, that I think things have changed. How many people know Jim Cimbala? Okay, Jim Cimbala is Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir Church in Brooklyn. Jim Cimbala, of, of all the people that if, if somebody, if there was a word from the Lord going around in the Christian body that God was trying to get people's attention on, Jim would probably be my very top guy that I would say, you know, I mean, if Jim's saying it, I feel more secure that it might actually be the Lord, right? So this is a book that he's just written called Storm. I want to read you just a little something from this book, Okay. He's, uh, uh, take a guess for me. Evangelical means this. It means that you believe the Bible is the word of God and that it is to inform how you're to live. See, the Bible, that's what we believe, right? We believe that the Bible is in fact the word of God and that we're to be, it's to tell us and to shape us into how that we live and walk before the Lord, okay? That's evangelical. Now, what percentage of the population do you think is evangelical? Think about moral majority that we had just a few years back. Think about when you hear about the, the huge voting block that is evangelical voters and all that kind of stuff. What, what percentage do you think are evangelicals in the country? Just yell it out. 1%. Well, you got, you're going too far, okay, come on. 30. I mean, yeah, 30% is about where I had it, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. Four different researchers trying to understand this. Four different researchers not working together, working independently of each other, have just released research on this exact question. Those four different researchers found remarkable consistency in their findings, which was it's between 7 and 
That means, and this is what they're saying, and this is what their conclusion said, 7 to 8.9% of people in the country, in America, now believe that the Bible is actually the source that informs them into how to live life and walk before the Lord properly. Less than 10% now. When I felt, when I was on my walk, that's what I felt. I felt like God was saying the influence of Christians has dropped so markedly. As I said to you when I first said it, before the culture was Christian and Christianity was the culture. But we have now gone so far away from that that we're at a place now to where the culture is not Christian. In fact, as again the research that Jim is pointing out says, in the last two years, the number of people that believe that are antagonistic to what the Bible has to say has risen from 10 to 17% in two years. That's one of the highest rates of change in religious things. Religious things don't tend to change fast. That's one of the highest rates of change I've ever measured in any measurement. And they're saying, just what does it mean for the next two years? What happens when it's 34%? See? What happens? Really? So I think what God is saying is, it's a new day. Okay, and he talks about things like, uh, you know, the church is very much at the heart of this because as he talks about here, they're doing research in church and they're saying 46% of churchgoers now, 46% of churchgoers report that their life has not changed at all in any way because of their church going. Fully half the people that go to church this Sunday morning are reporting that it's not changing their life at all. In fact, one-third will say that they've never heard anything in church that has changed them at all. One-third will say they've never experienced God in any fashion at church. Two-thirds will say in the last five services that they attended, there was no presence of God whatsoever. They did not feel it. It did not change them. Nothing happened that made them feel like God was present at the service. I could keep going. For the sake of hearing what God wants to say to us, let me not, and let me start to introduce Sean. Because Sean, you don't have to come up just yet. I'm not quite done, I'm almost there. The, the, word, the Lord says, confirm a thing by two or three witnesses. Marina, Jim Zimbala, I want to introduce you to Sean Lumsden. Sean Lumsden, many of you already know, because there's a significant percentage of our church population that came from a church plant that he did way back when that quite frankly was dealing with these issues 20, 30 years ago about what was wrong with the church and about how to change it. And, they were, and, and the Lees and Chins and other people were going after in a serious way how to change what the church is so that it becomes more effective, so that it becomes more real, so that it becomes more of what God wants it to be. And this is what Sean did. Now, eventually, and just to show you the kind of character of the man that we're going to be hearing from today, eventually what Sean did is he moved over to Spokane and, and he helped with a church plant, but then he ended up taking a church in the poorest zip code in the state of Washington. And the ministry that he does is real. This is ministry on the ground with people that are in, in desperate situations. And it's incredibly difficult. And this is what God has called him to. And he has to be bivocational to pull it off because they can't afford to, to support him in the whole nine yards. And he's just rocking it. And he's changing the world the way that God changed the world. I love this man. We have become incredibly close friends. I actually knew him before there was a Jacob's Ladder, to your Jacob's Ladder's people, because we met at a church boot camp, and we have been deep friends ever since. And we get together every conference that we, if we're at a conference, we always make a point to get together. And we talk, and we talk on the phone on a somewhat regular basis. 
I told Sean what I felt like the Lord had said to me about East Lake and about this change and this thing that was happening. And the reason why Sean's here today is because Sean said, let me tell you what the Lord said to me. And I don't want to steal the thunder of what he said, but he's going to be telling you about this. And what I want to say is this. This is, this is what I'm, why I'm doing a long introduction. This is not a normal sermon. First of all, if you know Sean, you know that there's no chance that it's a normal sermon. But this is not a normal sermon. This, here's what I'm trying to get to. It's very easy for us as Christians to discern the times in our spiritual sense and do nothing about it with anything in our lives. Get, Jesus says, you know when it's red sky at night, it's sailor's delight, red sky at morning, sailor take morning. You know how to read the seasons, but you don't read what the Spirit's doing. I'm telling you as your pastor, and I, you know how I'm, 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 the first time those words have ever left my mouth in this setting, because I prefer not to be called that. But as your pastor, I'm telling you, I think we're in an important moment. And I think we can either embrace what's happening as forerunners, the word that came, as intercessors. I think we can embrace what God is doing, and if we do, I think that God will do extraordinary things, as I've been saying. I, you know, let me change that. Extraordinary things is a worldly way of thinking about it. It makes you think of something spectacular, and that's why you do it for the, for the juice. Let me tell you, I think that we're in a desperate situation and I think God is calling and looking for somebody who will stand in the gap, for somebody who will stand up, for somebody who will do something and start calling out to him that he might heal this land. That's what I think is going on right now. And I'm telling you, we need to be the ones that catch what the Spirit is saying or we will continue to be at the end of that flag flapping around in the wind, getting beat to a pulp. Right? I believe that God took us into this Empowered series two years ago because he was preparing us for this day. He was preparing us to be able to witness and be effective in the world in a new way because it's a new day. With that, welcome the wonderful man, Sean Lumsden. That was an introduction. So, you ready for my introduction to my sermon? The American church isn't doing well. That was it. Can we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we stand here this morning completely united in one thought. You have invaded our world and you have changed our life. And it is your absolute intention to invade the world of those we live and love among so that you will bring them to the same realization that you are God, you change our life, and you change our lives so that we will invest ourselves in the lives of those we love. We will not leave here the same this morning. We will no longer live under a cloud that says God used to do things. But we will wake up every morning full of the joy of the Holy Spirit knowing 
that every step we take, every person we interact with is someone who is divinely placed to be touched by your love, and we're the person to do it. And everybody said, amen. Well, good morning. I am so excited. That is an actual clock back there. See, every time I've watched Kurt on... on video and he's on, on the internet and he says start the clock i'm thinking that's just like kind of an inside joke between him and you like i'm watching how long i preach wink wink start the clock and and i i thought i was going to look back there and see like a sundial you know or or maybe a week at a glance calendar where Kurt just looks up and goes, oh, good, it's still Sunday. I can keep going. I, no. <laughs> the message today is called Ichabod to Emmanuel. Kurt did a much better job in setting up the situation than I possibly could. So I'm just going to jump right in. We're going to go through a lot of Bible today. Are you okay with that? I'm glad you said yes because you don't have another choice today. And by the way, I listened to the Revelation series and you guys are okay with a lot of Bible. So we're going to be okay here, but I do want to say this. About the time that Kurt alluded to, God woke me up at 1230 in the morning on a, sat on a Sunday morning. And the reason I know it's God is because, A, I don't normally fall asleep Saturday nights very well. And then when I woke up, I noticed my right hand was absolutely burning. And when I pray for people, when I sense the Holy Spirit, my right hand gets very hot. And I woke up and I said, okay, God, you must be doing something. And he says very clearly, Samuel chapter 4. And so I turned to Samuel chapter 4 and I just started reading. And after I got through these three chapters that we have to go through, within a matter of six minutes, God downloaded the interpretation that you're going to hear today. And I think it's a perspective of where we are as the American church. And by the way, I'm only going to talk about those of us who consider ourselves evangelical charismatics. I'm not talking about the American church with the capital T. I'm talking about just people like us. Fair enough? And we're going to see a story in the Old Testament that I think parallels pretty closely where we are now. So go ahead and read along. See if I got this functioning. Yes. Was that me or was that you who clicked us over? Wait, I got it off. Never mind. Where it says on means it's on. I'm pretty good with these things. All right. So here's what I have to do. Because this covers about four chapters of the Bible, I'm going to give you the entire story arc so you know where we're starting and where we're going. Please don't get too lost in any details. I will go back at the end and piece in some details. This is essentially a soap, scripture, observation, application, prayer. So look at your neighbor and say, don't get too bogged down. Say it again and don't mumble. So you can tell I listen to Jerry Cook a lot, can't you? Nothing sounds worse than a group of people mumbling. Here's where the story goes. The first part we're going to look at is Israel versus the Philistines. And you're going to see what happens is Israel loses everything. The second story is Yahweh, our God, versus Dagon, the God of the Philistines. And the Philistines wind up hurting. The third part of the story is Israel versus their idols and how they finally have victory. So the story starts off. We're in 
Samuel chapter 4, we're starting in verse 2. I'm going to read fast. I hope you can just keep up easily if you can. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now, you're not used to that in the Old Testament, are you? Pretty much in the Old Testament, whatever God and his people go, they win. Amen? Amen? Verse 3. But this time, the Philistines killed about 4,000 people. So in verse 3, the people came into the camp. The elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Don't you think they would have said, why have the Philistines defeated us? Anybody in here know how easy it is to blame God everything time something goes wrong? I think I lost him there, Lord. Hello? Things just start to go sideways, and all of a sudden, God, where were you? Right? So the story goes on. Now the elders say, let's take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that... It may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. You know, I really want to trust God, but he doesn't always come through the way I want him to. I know I should believe God for the victory, but sometimes, yeah, he's not so consistent. But that Ark, let me tell you about that Ark. That Ark's pretty impressive. Right? Do you know the American church has created a lot of Ark of the Covenants and stopped going back to the God of the Covenant? Can I tell you what this is like? Thinking the Ark is going to deliver you instead of God? The problem is the Ark is unplugged from its power source. This would be like going into Lowe's or Home Depot and walking up to the bathroom section and seeing a toilet. Did anybody here do the math? Could you use a toilet at Lowe's? Yes. Would it be effective? Because it's not connected to the power source. Are you tracking with me? So you got to understand, I'm not eloquent, I'm just memorable. <laughs> so the story goes on. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of the great shout of the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said God had come into the camp. Now, here's something the American church does pretty darn well. We're really good at getting everybody together and... Shouting. We do music really well. And we think if we get the Ark of the Covenant in place and we get the music going and everybody's shouting, then that should do what it's supposed to do. And who are we kidding? The Philistines are afraid, aren't they? This seems like this should be going pretty well, right? Let's see where the story goes. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Everything looked 
perfect. The ark was in place. The soldiers were in place. The shouting was in place. Anybody here know what it's like to think you have everything lined up with God and you're really expecting a big victory and you turn around twice and it's worse than before? Hello? And it gets worse. Phineas, one of the evil priests, his wife goes into labor couple of verses later, and she called the boy that was born Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband died, she eventually dies. The baby is born. She looks at it, and she says, Ichabod, the glory has departed. This child is now going to grow up his whole life marked by failure. Can I just say, I think this is pretty close to where the American church is. I think we got a lot of things that look good. But when it comes right down to it, when we get right down into battle, we are not winning the victories. God has promised us we're going to win because Jesus already won the ultimate victory. Does that make sense? The victory is won. Our job is to enforce it. Right? Now, let me really quick give you a little bit of theology. When you talk about the glory of God, this is the little analogy I use. Start with me with something we understand. The sun is a star. The sun radiates heat and light. And when we go out underneath the sun, we feel heat and we see. Correct? Now let's compare this to, to God. God is holy. The only time in the Bible God is repeated for a characteristic is holy. Is he love? Yes. Is he just? Yes. Is he righteous? Yes. Is he merciful? Yes. But he is holy, 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 set apart. Glory is what radiates from him. Just like the sun radiates heat and light, God radiates glory. And so when we encounter his glory, we feel empowered peace. Does that make sense? Now, I might not write a doctoral treatise on this. The glory of God is his kabod. It's, it's the weight of his presence. It's the weight of his reputation. If, if growing up you were giving your mom problems, your mom would always say, just wait till your father gets home. And the weight of his reputation would make you go, sorry, mom. Right? That is what we're talking about here. But on a practical sense, when you encounter the glory of God, you know it because you go, everything's going to be okay. My bills might be big, but my God is bigger. My kid might be rebellious, but God is stronger. My sickness might be pretty bad, but my healer is even stronger. Does this make sense? What we're missing is that weight from God, like... When, when you teach a child how to play baseball, the kid will stand here with the bat and he'll swing, but eventually dad comes up and he puts his hand behind the bat and he says, okay, we're going to do this together, son. And the ball gets pitched and the dad and the boy go, and the little boy goes, wow, look how far I hit it. I think what the American church is missing is the glory of God that comes and says, let me do the swinging. Does that make sense? Look at your neighbor and ask him, does that make sense? Are we, getting, are we doing okay? 
If you want a simple definition, the glory of God, as I'm discussing it today, is God's empowering presence. If you appreciate it, and if you're at a time in absolute trial, and you realize, wait a second, God is with me, and that's enough, that's called joy, appreciating God's presence. But today for glory, we're talking his empowering presence for his will to be done. Amen? Now, let me just tie in a couple things really quick. Glory is connected to the anointing. When someone is anointed, they have a little bit of God's glory that is working as at play. But what I'm talking about here is not a little bit of God's anointing like, like, a, like a garden hose. I'm talking about the whole fire hose. When we come into a situation, do, do, might we have faith that uses a, a garden hose? Yes. But I'm talking about being able to come into a situation, bringing the full power of God to bear, because we got Jesus inside of us. Hello? So it's not just a good garden hose, but it's the whole stinking fire hose bringing the power and the love and the peace of God to bear to people we love and live with. Amen? That's the difference between people who are anointed and people who are walking in the glory. Glory of God is what empowers grace. Glory of God is what gives us favor. And when we say somebody is gifted, it's because their, their gifts are in alignment with the glory of God. Okay? Good. You guys are smart. This helps. So now we have to go to chapter 2. So here's what you... Oh, can I go down here or do you lose me? Here's what you have to do with chapter 2. Look at your neighbor and say, this is going to go quick. The glory of God has been sown. We're in chapter 5 now. Thank you. Here's what happens. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon. Dagon is the god of the Philistines. Dagon, and so here's what happens. After they put the ark in there, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Does anybody here know what the Hebrew concept of worship actually means? Prostrate. So this statue goes right in front of prostrate in front of the ark. So they took Dagon and they set him on his place again. Verse 4. But the next morning Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Amen, huh? Now, let me tell you what's so fun about this. If I was a warlord back then in one of these nations and I went and let's say I captured Adam's country and Adam was the king, you know what I would do? I'd cut off Adam's head and I'd put it in my temple to say, look at what my God did to the king. And you notice what happens to Dagon? His head gets knocked off. And the next thing I'd do is I'd go to Adam's temple where he had whatever God he worshipped, and I'd cut off their hands, and I'd put their hands in my temple to say, see, their God can't even touch our God. And you see what happens in this story? The Philistines get this because the story goes on. Verse 6, now the hand of the Lord was heavy, and he ravaged them, and he smote them with tumors. <laughs> the Bible is being very demure here. These kind of tumors were in the genital region. This means they were either genital warts or herpes. Take your pick. The ark of God of Israel must not remain among us, for his hand is superior upon us and Dagon our God. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to, read this with me, went up to, 
it didn't go to Dagon. Did you see this? Things started to get so bad, the people started to turn to Yahweh. And then it goes on. Verse 6, then the priests are saying, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they said, if you send it away, the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. It's in bold because it's important. You guys got that? You guys are so good. But you shall surely return it to him with a guilt offering. Well, what shall the guilt offering be which we shall return to him? And they said, for one plague was on all of you and your lords. Verse 5. So you shall make likeness of your tumors and give likeness of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. So they basically make golden tumors and golden mice. Can't make this stuff up, folks. So they, they put the, don't look at this. Look over here. So they put the ark on, the, on a cart. Cows walk directly from the heart of the land of the Philistines to the border of Israel. So they know it's miraculous. Now, look at what Israel has been doing all this time. Verse 2. Now we're in chapter 7, I believe. From that day, the ark remained on the outskirts of Israel for 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years. The ark has been in Israel, but they haven't done anything with it. 20 years. Can you imagine the theologies that propped up in those 20 years? Well, it mu just must be the will of God for us to suffer under the hands of the Philistines. It must be God's sovereign will that means for us to lose to the Philistines again and again. You know, I'm pretty old now, and it's been, gee, at least 20 years since we had a victory. It must be God's will. Well, I'll tell you what, if God wanted us to defeat the Philistines, he'd come and he'd do it himself. Because God's sovereign and he's powerful, right? And then all these other people go, well, yeah, he's sovereign and powerful, so I guess it must be his will for us to live in defeat. No. No. For 20 years, they probably built theologies based around failure, not around victory. Why did they build their theologies around failure? Because they've only seen failure for 20 years. And it may, maybe God just wants some people to live free of the Philistines and everybody else he wants to suffer under their hands. Well, that must be it because that's all we've experienced. Hello? Have you ever gone to pray for people and the only thing that comes into your mind when you pray for healing with someone is the times that you've prayed for them and they haven't gotten healed? I think I lost them on that one too. What do you say... We stop building our theologies based on failures. And we start building them again on the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So watch what happens. This is so good. This, this is so good. I'm going to buy this CD myself, just so you know. Then, the, then Samuel spoke to the, all the house of Israel. And he said, if, you notice the contingent. If, we, he's saying, you have a responsibility here. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, all in Hebrew means 
all. That's what I'm here for. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and I think at this point he explains, here's what it looks like. Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. And he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. Now let's be really specific. Who is going to deliver us from the hands of the Philistines? Is there any debate who's going to deliver us from the Philistines? Could he be any more specific? Who is going to do the actual power to give the victory? But what is our part? Do you see how this works? People sitting around saying, well, if God wanted to, he could. Can I just tell you that's the most worthless discussion somebody can get into? Well, if God wanted to. Well, hello? The issue is not what does God want to do. The issue is what has God done? And what has he said? I will bless this. Amen? So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. So they did the right thing. Now let me just tell you really quick. Baal was the god of prosperity. You would give, you know, of the, the, the outcrop of your farms would go to Baal and he would bless your produce. Asheroth was the god of sexual fertility. And they basically said, men, if you want your crops to grow and you want your animals to be blessed, come and have sex with these prostitutes or watch other men having sex with these prostitutes and God is going to bless your fields. Now, can I just say in terms of church marketing, they've got a pretty good angle there. Can, can you see why Israel is constantly, I mean, can you imagine now if, if, if we said, hey, you know, hey, man, if you want your business to grow, look at pornography and go to strip clubs. Well, that'd be an easy sell, right? Verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel. And they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Now, when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. But the sons of Israel were afraid of the Philistines. Now, don't you think if they've done all of these great spiritual things, they should be empowered, right? Well, remember something, folks. They haven't seen a victory in 20 years. By the way, anybody here know it's that, that you can still do the right thing and be afraid? Amen? Verse 8. Then the sons of Israel... I uh, don't want to go there. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Do you notice now? They're getting it. It's not about the ark. It's about God. And they're saying, we're going to fight, you go pray. So verse 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering the burnt offering, and Israel drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. How many of you today have a situation or a person or a circumstance in your life where you just say, God, I need you to thunder a great thunder? 
Four of you. Let me ask this side. How many of, seriously, people, how many of you have people in your world who are self-destructive, whose addiction is kicking their hind end, who are stuck in gambling or stuck in porn? How many of you have people whose relationships are falling apart? How many people of you have, have friends or family members who once had a fire for God, and now they're just, ah, you know, I get there when I get there? How many of you know people who are so far away from the Lord, you go, there is no way in the world God's going to reach them? I don't know about you, but I need God to thunder a great thunder. He did it for me. Is this helping? But look at where it ends. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The story ends with an entire generation of Israeli people not being impressed, I'm sorry, oppressed by the Philistines. Don't we want this? for our church, and for our kids. To raise up a generation who don't know what it's like to pray for the sick and not see them get healed. To be able to walk into the lives of people who are broken and in disrepair and just say, hey, guess what? You just tell me what's going on and God's got an answer for you. How do I know that? Because he put me here today. Ichabod to Emmanuel. Should we see how we get there? All right, look at your neighbor and say, you still got brain space? Everybody still got brain space? Of course you do. Kurt wouldn't even be done with his introduction if he was up here. You got so much brain space, I could put in two more messages and you wouldn't even blink. So let's go back and let's remember the story. Starts off with Israel versus the Philistines, and Israel lost everything. Second point was God versus Dagon and left the Philistines hurting. The third part was Israel versus their idols and victory at last. And then remember this, because all this happened, a generation was set free. So I'm going to break this down one point at a time. Israel trusted the Ark of the Covenant more than the God of the Covenant. This is where they got into trouble. And this is where I believe the American church has wandered off. And I'm just going to go right to it. Anybody wonder what the main idol is of the American church? What is the thing that we have created in lieu of the presence of God to make us feel good about things? Money? Worship? Church? You ready for this? I think the American church has gotten lost in wanting to be sophisticated. Now, hear me specifically. When I say sophistication, I do not believe the opposite of sophistication is Larry the Cable Guy. All right? I am not talking about a lack of discernment. I am not talking about snake handling. The opposite of sophistication is childlike faith. If you want to write something down, write that down. I think the really big, huge thing the American church has missed is we so desperately want the world to like us. 
we have started to adopt ways. We think, well, if we look sophisticated enough, then they have to. Let me give you, let me give you a couple of examples. There are churches that are so obsessed with their image. They, I believe they've just come and said, you know what, Holy Spirit, we, 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 here's our deal. We want you to move, of course. We want you to be present, of course. But, you know, we, we want people to sing, but we don't want them to sing, you know, too passionately. We don't want anyone to be crying. And we certainly don't want to hear any prayer languages. And we certainly don't want anyone to fall over. So, so we, we want a good part of you, but there are just a few things we don't want. Anybody here ever try to tell God what they do want and don't want from him? And I think his response is usually, <laughs> right? Right? We need to stop treating the Holy Spirit like a fast food clerk. Because I think at some point God goes, well, you know what? If you're going to be this picky... I can wait. Right? And I think then there's another side of the American charismatic church that says, you know what? For the world to like us, if we look sophisticated because we have enough money and everything in our life is going well and we look blessed and we can point to all of these visible, tangible blessings, then the world will like us. And if we just get a $65 million plane, then the world will like us. By the way, if anybody sees Creflo Dollar, will you just tell him for me, number one, Jesus had to borrow a donkey and coats and a womb and a tomb, right? I mean, he didn't use the tomb for very long, but anyway. But do, do you see how the idol at the center of it is? We have to look sophisticated for the world. Now, and see, here's what the devil does. The reason we're having these conflicts is because we want to be relevant. We want to be, we, we don't want to be offensive. Amen? We, we want to be something that fits within society. But the devil takes us to one end or he takes us to the other end. And the other issue with the charismatic church right now is they've decided we want to be so unsophisticated. But every time we get together, it has to be about adrenaline and endorphins. And it has to be about this level of excitement. And, it, and if there isn't this level of excitement, then God's not moving. And I think God just goes, you know what? If you're demanding that I do certain things or, so it looks a certain way for you to feel good about it, I'll wait. See, there's something about being eternal. He can wait a long time. And the problem is the American church is so insecure. You know? We need to be in him secure, not insecure. And realize we have the very answer our world is dying for. We just have to agree with it and not feel we have to fix it. Amen? All right, so that's the first one. Here's the second one. And I'm not going to talk about this long, but chaos reigns when God's glory is not in God's house. You look at our world, and you see a very real picture of, of 
just like with Dagon and the Philistines, their world went sideways because Israel wasn't doing their job. God is waiting for us to step up to our rightful place so that he can continue to bless the whole world. And if we're not doing our job, his glory just goes and makes things tougher on those who don't know him, in a manner of speaking. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to keep going on that one. But here's the third thing. Here's how they turned it around. Eventually, Israel learned how to agree, how to agree with their identity. Say, agree with their identity. Look at your neighbor and say, I agree with my identity. Now, after you've listened to this story, you're probably going, where did he get that? Anyone? How many scotches did he have in the shower this morning? What was he thinking? Well, watch this. Because this is how we get back to where God wants us to be. How did it start? It started with repentance. Friends, repenting when you've been a Christian for any period of time is not some big, sad, sorrow-filled event. Repentance is the most exciting, joyful thing you can do. Because when you repent, you're just saying, I just want to rethink. And what does Jesus and John the Baptist say? Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a kingdom answer for everything that kept you awake last night. Right? But we have to rethink. We have to stop and go back and say, Lord, where have we walked away from you? Repentance, and, and I want to call this strategic repentance. Repentance is the most joyous thing Christians can do. Where we can stop and say, you know what? I'm wrestling with anxiety, so that means God must be trying to build peace in me. I'm wrestling with insecurity, so that must mean God must be trying to restate his identity in me. I am wrestling with terror, which means God must be trying to restate his joy in me. Does this make sense? And you can be strategic. And we as a church in, in Lake Sam and Living Hope, we can come back to him and say, God, what do we have to be? You know, we feel powerless. So that means God must be trying to bring power back into our lives. Does this make sense? But friends, let me be really specific. We're not seeking signs and wonders. We're seeking the heart of the Father. I'm going to say that to the drum set. We're not seeking signs and wonders. We're seeking the heart of the Father. Amen? But here's what happens. When we, when we understand how much Jesus loves people, when we really understand, when we rethink as to how much he wants to see people set free, all of a sudden his life and his power just start flowing through us because we agree with our identity. Amen? Second thing, we have to leave our idols. Your idols are whatever is self-controlled comfort in your life. We all have things that when we get scared and we get nervous, we go back to that aren't God. Those are the idols in your life, and those we have to walk away from. Because every time you turn, so let me give you a perfect example. If you turn to, so, so let's say, let's talk about, talk about the fruit of the Spirit, peace. Everybody here has an idol that they go to for peace when they're feeling tense and when they're feeling nervous. If you're not going to God, you're going to some idol. And let's say that your idol of choice is anger. 
If the way that you bring peace into your life is to get so angry that everybody leaves you alone, God just says, well, you know what? I got all this peace, but if you want to go with anger, that's okay. I'll wait. Does that make sense? The two idols that they mentioned were the God of success and the God of sexual pleasure. And who the heck are we kidding? Does our society worship those two things? But here's the part you got to notice. They fought through their fear. Their fear didn't send them cowering in a corner. It made them stand up and go to the battlefield because they knew that they were going to set themselves free and they were going to set a generation free. And the story goes on. How did they fight? They fought with intercession. They said to Samuel, don't stop praying. They understood something happens when the people of God pray. My definition of intercession is you're instigating an invasion. You're instigating an invasion. When you're looking at a situation and you're saying, my brother is still addicted to, to alcohol. God, today I grabbed you with one hand. I grabbed them with the other hand. And I'm going to hold both of us until, God, you pull me so that I got him. And I'm going to pull him out. I'm going to instigate this invasion of the goodness of God. And when you start to pray, you plant seeds of God's breakthrough. Okay, this is what you're doing. You're planting abundant life. And anybody know what it's like to pray for something for a long time? Uh, hello, Lord. It's me again. Yeah, not much has changed. Right? When you go back time and time again, you're watering the seeds you planted. Does that make sense? And here's the great news. If you pray for a long time with something, God is going to answer, and he's going to answer with interest. Some miracles happen quickly, and it builds our faith. Some miracles happen over a long period of time, and it builds our faith and our character. Right? But we start with praying. But it doesn't stop with praying. Then they went and they sacrificed. We have to get past this idea that those things that we sacrifice for God are gone forever. Friends, your sacrifices are the seeds that you plant for God to bless. If, if you're sitting here and you've been a Christian for some time, you say, Lord, I just need you to bless me. I need you to bless me. He goes, great, I want to. What seeds have you planted for me to bless? Does that make sense? But get this. Then they realized they were soldiers for God and not soldiers for the God of the Ark of the Covenant. And they got up and they fought. They interceded and they interacted. Say this with me. They interceded and they interacted. This is how we win victories that are going to set a generation free. Amen. They interceded and they interacted. Like I said, we're not looking. We're not looking for signs and wonders. We're looking for God's heart. Because I'm going to tell you something. He empowers the people who agree with him on an intimate level. He trusts people who agree with him on an intimate level. And that says that he can release his greatest things into their world. Right now at my church, we're seeing people get healed almost twice a week. 
prayed for a woman in our church who, who had suffered from arthritis in her feet and her hands. And we prayed for her. We got it. And we kept praying around. And all of a sudden, she just goes, whoa, whoa. And we go, what? Because we had such great faith. She goes, my feet don't hurt. She goes, did you hear that popping? And we go, no. She goes, and she goes, my feet went like and she got up, and she starts jumping around. She goes, my feet don't hurt. And then while she's jumping around, she realizes her hands don't hurt. And we didn't even pray for her hands. Okay? We're seeing, we're, we're, now, my, my mentor in, in federal way is seeing more physical healings than I have ever heard. They've seen four people healed of brain cancer tumors after they've prayed for handkerchiefs and mailed them to them. Can't make this stuff up, folks. God is doing this, this, this kind of stuff. And miracles are awesome, but deliverances. Do you know how many people in your world are oppressed by demonic spirits? I'm not talking possessed. I'm talking harassed and oppressed. In the past year, we've, we've seen a young man who came out of a spiritist upbringing, who had exorcism type of activities, of plates being thrown across the room, completely set free. We had a, a woman who was horribly sexually abused as a young girl. For 20 years, she would pick up the phone, and every three weeks or so, every time she'd pick up the phone, she'd hear a voice, a demonic voice laughing at her, as if to remind her, I'm still there. We saw her completely set free. A woman in our church who used to be in prostitution and meth and heroin, who used to go to bed at night, and if she woke up in the middle of the night, she'd look and she'd see a demon sitting on her bed. We saw her completely set free. A guy who got saved just three weeks ago. He came into my church because Saturday night he's playing video games. And all of a sudden, from the TV, something shoots out, barely misses him, and, and shatters everything behind him. Do you think he's ready to get saved? And he got saved. And his whole family's been, been coming to church. And those things are exciting. But can I tell you what's really exciting? It's when God does these little things. About, about a month ago, I'm visiting a young man in my church who's, who, who's having his appendix out. And while I'm there and I'm seeing him, and, and it, it's one of those afternoons where it's just a comedy of errors. You know what I'm talking about? Everything, everywhere. And as I'm leaving and as I'm going back, I go to the elevator and I just push the button, and I'm standing there. The elevator opens up. The woman who used to go to my church is just standing in the elevator. And my church isn't that big that I get people just standing in the elevator, right? She had just heard that her cancer had come back. And God made sure I was right there at that second. I mean, this, we're not talking running into somebody at the mall. That I was able to say, well, God must got something in store for you. And I got to pray for her two days later while I am still visiting this young man in the hospital. I walked, walked past a young lady with, with a couple friends, and, and I'm busy. I'm going to my next appointment. And God goes, go back. Go back and see who's sitting there. And I go back, and it's one of my former clients from my other job. And her daughter had just had a diabetic shock and was in the hospital for two days and was going to be there another week. And she's absolutely terrified. And I was able just to go and say to her, you know what? God loves you so much that he wanted me to be right here to let you know that you're not alone. 
praying with a woman at my church about a month ago, and we had just been praying as a group. And as I come back, and, and I had prayed for a while, so I'm feeling pretty amped. I'm feeling, okay, I got God on my side. Yeah, we're, we're going to take care of this right now, honey. And she goes, well, I want you to pray for her. I go, no, don't tell me. Let God tell me. So we start praying. And the only image I got in my mind was a tricycle. Seriously, God, I'm waiting for, oh, but thou will have your voice cast on many waters, and thou shalt, no, tricycle. So I look at her, and by the way, Jacob's Ladder people, isn't that fun being able to, you still do this, I hope? All right, good. I, I, I go, all right, all I'm sensing is a tricycle. Does that mean anything? Now, I'm expecting her to say, well, when I was a child, my sister got the tricycle, and I did, you know, those kind of things. I say, all I'm getting is a tricycle. She goes, no. Oh, great. God, you failed me. She says, what I've been praying for is my family is going through a cycle of sexual abuse. And there's three rounds of it. And she goes, <gasps> tricycle. Oh, my gosh. Can I tell you what it meant to her that I was prophetically sensitive to tell her God sees you without me having to say something that might embarrass her? Right. Like when Jesus says, go get your husband, as opposed to, yeah, I know you've had a few friends. Friends. This life of bringing the power to God to bear for all of those you live and love around is what God has prepared all of us to do. When Jesus said greater things than these you will do, he either meant it or he didn't. And I don't know about you, but I'm not smart enough to disagree with Jesus. I can't afford to think something different about my world than he does. Right? And that's what he has in store for each and every one of us as individuals and as a church. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of living under Ichabod. I'm ready to start living under Emmanuel. Can we pray? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Here's what we'd like to do in response. Just as there was a repentance part and there was a warfare part, as God puts something on your heart, will you pray a simple prayer of repentance? Lord, forgive us for, and then pray the opposite in to your world now and to your kids' world coming. Does that make sense? Uh, so if, if you say, Lord, forgive us for greed and release the spirit of generosity in us and our children. Does that make sense? So Jesus, as we bring this time to you, lead us, direct us to both walk away from the old and walk towards the new. Go ahead and just pray right where you're at. If something leads to you, just say it out loud so everybody can hear.
Christ Jesus. Forgive us for and bring the opposite in. Who else has things on their heart? Sir, in the back, can you say that one again? Yes. Yes, Jesus. Father, when we hear from you, when we follow through and forgive us for not continuing to listen to you, for not opening up. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus.
So, so Lord, now that we have <clears throat> cleansed ourselves, we now want to point into the people that you have put in our world that need you and need your breakthrough and need you to thunder a mighty thunder. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in this corner, and I, I just we're just going to kind of go back, and I want you to speak first names out in the presence of God that you know needs a breakthrough in their life, and you're going to be the person to bring it to them, or at least pray it in. Got it? And here's what we're going to do. After we get done with every quadrant, we are all going to say amen because it's done. Okay? So, so go <clears throat> this side. If you've got a friend or family member who needs God, just speak their first name out. Go ahead. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? And in the name of Jesus, we all say amen. This section. Call them out. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Who else? Don't, don't be afraid. If God puts them on your heart, it's proof that he's moving. Okay? Is that everybody? Ready? Amen. Right here. Call them out. Don't be afraid. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right? In Jesus' name, amen. Final corner. Let's hear it. Okay. In Jesus' name, all right, I want to do one more thing. If you have a friend or a family member trapped in drugs or alcohol or porn or gambling, uh, the major vices, will you stand? I've got an anointing to see these people set free. So if you see somebody standing up, would you go and just lay your hand on their shoulder? We're doing business today, folks. Uh, put your hand on their shoulder. Let them know they're not alone. And, and just pray for these people like they're your kids that you're standing for. Can we get some people down here to lay hands? If you don't have anybody, thank you. Pray out loud. Come on. We're, we're going to storm the gates of heaven. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, for every one of these people who are represented here, Father, we know it is your heart to pull them out of the utter darkness and self-destruction that they're in. And in the name of Jesus, you are opening up doors. You are putting the right people in front of them. I pray they are revolted by whatever drug or alcohol they are consuming or whatever their drug of choice is. And in the name of Jesus, they will know in my Father's house there is more than enough. And they will know that there's somebody here who's praying for them. And this week, Jesus, we decree and we declare absolute rock bottom so that these people will come back and serve you like you've created them to do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just reach down and, and grab Thank this you. cup. Have a seat and reach down and grab this cup. Make sure you understand there's two of them. In the lower one is the bread. I, I was so struck by the way that you just led the service. And I've seen you preach before and you've preached here before. 
And just the way that you did that, does that feel very similar to what the Lord's been doing with us lately? Just creating an entirely new way of, of being on Sunday morning, something that's much more participatory, that's much more real, that's much more sort of tangible. Uh, you know, I just feel like the Lord's moving. I know that we're knit together. Uh, I just pray that this is something that's happening everywhere, that church is becoming something entirely new, entirely new, so that we can start becoming the people that God intended us to be, which was like him, to reach the, the people that need him, which is everybody. So, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift up this cup in which is the body of our God, the body of our Savior, the one who came and took upon himself, not just took it upon himself, but became the sin, the, the rebellion, the, the places where we rejected you. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we recognize that we're those people that did that. That we're the people who have not stood up in the things that you have given us. That we have been the ones that have not done greater things than you. And it wasn't your fault, it was us. So we recognize that we've helped to break the entire world by failing to stand in the things that you've made us to be. And so in Jesus' name, we take our finger and we put it in that cup and we break it. I love the sound of that clicking. We recognize that we are in this moment repenting. In this moment, recognizing our failure and understanding that it is your healing. It is by your stripes that we are healed. We bring you, God, the broken places, the places of failure, and we look to the God who has healed completely and utterly. And so we take this bread together saying, God, heal us all. Heal us all in Jesus' name. And Lord, in your spectacular name, we now lift this cup in which is the life that you want us to lead. We heard stories from Sean at the end of things that we know that you have for us. Some of us are, are afraid to do them, let's be frank. Some of us can't wait. And most of us exist somewhere in between there. There are those here today who don't even know you. To those I would say right now, this is your, this is your moment. When we take this cup, this is the life that God has for you. Take this cup saying, I want to live the life that you have for me, Lord, no longer the life that I lived. And all of us would say exactly the same thing with you. We would say we don't want to live the life that we've been living. We want to live the life that you died for, that you intended, that you created the whole of the heavens and the earth, and us included, since before the foundation of the world, having a work prepared for us. We want to enter into the life that you have for us, not the life that we've been leading. We want to lead the life that you have. And we don't even really want to do that to some degree, but we come to you now and say, God, heal us. God, empower us. God, take, we believe, help our unbelief. But even more, God, take that thing that you have for us, which is glorious, and gently but surely walk us into it. So your life become mine. If that is your prayer, if that is your heart, whether you know him or not, take this cup together, would you please? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.